in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today are my great friends and co-hosts, Brian Fry in Spokane, Washington. Good evening. Doing very well, thank you. And also from... In Pittsburgh, Crosstown, COVID-style, socially distanced from another location, Whereabouts Unknown, Chad Robinson. Oh, that's like my favorite wrestler entrance, Whereabouts Unknown. <laughs> well, I don't know my wrestling very well, sorry. Is that a name that I should know? No, that's uh, like Kane, Big Red Machine. That's okay. where he was from, Whereabouts Unknown. Thank you. I, I needed that. I'm, I've lost the <laughs> wrestling audience, but you've kept oh, them. You've kept Stick them. around. Yes. Stick around, WWE fans. Yes. Now, today, I'm looking forward to doing another show with you guys because these are always a lot of fun, but let's just warm things up a little bit. What's the last movie you saw? Chad, why don't you take this one first? The last movie I saw was We Summon the Darkness. It had Alexandra uh, Daddario in it. Twing! Uh, yeah. Also Johnny Knoxville. It was an interesting little horror movie. Uh, didn't quite work out for me, but the cast intrigued me. All right, and uh, what about you, Brian? What's the last movie you saw? Uh, not precisely a new movie. It's just kind of one of my uh, old standbys. But I rewatched Thirteenth uh, Warrior the other day. Ah, you do love that movie. I do. I really enjoy it. I I enjoy it more than the ratings say as well. So, uh, and I've enjoyed the book too. Are, are you? Do you like the book and the movie better? Uh, I probably like the movie better. The book really is written more like a, a, a histories piece. It's, it's less flowy than the, the film, but they definitely left out some cool parts that, that would have been really nice to have in the movie. Yeah, I'm actually very similar to that review across the board. So, And the last movie I saw was Terminator Genesis, which uh, came out in 2015, but I just got it now. Oh, no. <laughs> Is that the most recent one where Sarah Connor comes back? No, this is the one where um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is still in it, and Amelia Clark from Lord of the Re- no from um, um, Game of Thrones is in it, mm-hmm. and Jai Courtney plays Reese, who goes back in time, but the timeline of the '80s has altered. Mm. I think I've seen that one, but I I haven't seen the newest one. Yeah. Yeah, this was, I watched this in order to prepare myself to be able to see the new one, so I knew I was one chapter behind. And, uh, you know, it's I wanted more, but I mean, uh, there'll never be anything as good as the first two movies. I don't know that I was down on it as Chad's uh, initial groan. <laughs> it was bad. I don't, I don't feel like with that movie franchise, they've done a great job with trying to keep any sort of continuity. It's always been like, and now a new vision, and now a new vision. Whereas, you know, if they really, you know, kept the kept the faith alive they would have you know brought back similar directors and whatnot and tried to to really nail it down everything's been somebody new trying to put their stamp on the franchise just like alien leave it alone after two yep yep don't touch it after james cameron (laughs) 
<laughs> just fail, fail, fail. What is a movie that you really wanted to see, but it let you down, Brian? Probably From Hell uh, with Johnny Depp. Uh, I was really excited to see that movie, and I left it very upset. <laughs> That's fair. All right, well, it said it was right on the label. This movie's From Hell, so, I mean, it can't be good. Yeah. I, I went to see it with, with uh, friends. They were very amused at my reaction, but I was like, what the actual F? <laughs> okay, now, Chad, what movie were you looking forward to? But it let you down. It's still a good movie, but I was so pumped after seeing the original Guardians of the Galaxy that when the second one came out, I just felt like it was a huge letdown. I thought it was meaner and kind of just disjointed. Huh. Wow. I knew you loved the first one so much and I actually didn't know how you felt about the second one. I just assumed it went down well for you. Interesting. Mine is Drowning Mona from 2000. It had such a loaded cast, and it's one of these movies that I saw a preview for. It took me years to get to see it, and I remember going to the rental store, getting it, watching it on my own, which I don't do a lot of, and being disappointed, thinking, how are all of these funny people not... It's just, uh, I, I don't know, the bar was up here, and my results were down here. Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> <laughs> That's on you, man. That's on you for looking forward to that. No, no, no. I, I wasn't looking forward to it. That looked like a dumpster fire to me from square one. But I know some people were like, oh, this is going to change. It's like John Carter. They're like, this is going to change sci-fi. And then I, I ended up watching it like two years later on an airplane and stifling laughter as it's just dumpster fire doesn't even really <laughs> navigate the horror that was how bad this movie was. Well, that was the bad news. Now for some good news. we got to get on and end on a good note. What's a movie that you had low expectations for, but you were pleasantly surprised by? Brian. Uh, I'm going to go with Pitch Perfect on this one. Uh, Jess basically drug me into the theater screaming to this movie. I even think I brought liquor with me, smuggled it into the theater because I'm like, I can't believe I'm seeing this movie. And within the first 15 minutes, I was like, this is really funny. This is a very enjoyable movie. And by the end of it, she's just giving me that smug C face. And it's one of my favorite franchises. Okay. And uh, what about you, Chad? What's a movie that you had low expectations for, but you were pleasantly surprised by? I'm going to stick with the MCU theme here. I was bored to tears by the first Captain America. So I was really dreading the Winter Soldier, but just went to see it for continuity's sake. And I kind of go back and forth on my favorites but it's at the top if not my favorite of the mcu movies mm, great choice my low expectations were was a movie called stardust i didn't see a lot of marketing for it didn't really come across my my way is that the neil gaiman book the one with uh, robert de niro and as the p pirate yep yep it has michelle pfeiffer charlie Cox oh, yeah. from daredevil yeah I just didn't, I didn't have high expectations. I didn't get a good feel for it. And I was like, this looks like a bad fantasy, but in reality, it's a good fantasy. So uh, do see it. Yeah. And if uh, especially if you want to see Daredevil and uh, with, with more hair uh, doing things before he was Daredevil. <laughs> Imagine if Daredevil could see. <laughs> just go see the original Daredevil then. <laughs> don't do that. No, don't do that. That'll go back to the previous question of movies that you were disappointed in. <laughs> um all right so let's get into it today uh what movie are we doing today brian we are gonna do 2005's kiss kiss bang bang that's right this movie comes out in 2005 it grosses 4.2 million dollars 
On the on the box office that year, it places at 186. The movie that places ahead of it was Being Julia, and the movie that places behind it was Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. The number one movie that year was Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Still a good movie, I say, Chad. I mean, you're wrong, but it's fine. Oh, violently retching. <laughs> and uh, IMDb gives Kiss Kiss Bang Bang a 7.5. Rotten Tomatoes critics give it an 85%, and the audience score is very close at 87%. So, Brian, why don't you start us off? Had you seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang before? What was your background with it? All right, so this is a closet. I shouldn't say closet. That This is one of those movies that I get excited to tell people about, kind of when I think about it. It's just one of those. It's not something that I just have in my back pocket like, oh, you should watch this. But when I do have the opportunity to really push this movie uh, for folks who have not seen it, it is, I, I, I want to say that I get at least eight out of 10 people with it who actually sit down and watch it. Uh, this went horrifically under the radar. It is one of my favorite movies. It's a terrific dark comedy as well as a neo-noir kind of Hollywood mystery. And I would highly recommend it to anybody who is a fan of the genre, fan of the actors in it, fan of uh, movies that are funny but can kind of still keep other plots salient so please watch this movie also watch it if you enjoy movies with titles that have the same word repeated in it twice very accurate chitty chitty bang bang another great one (laughs) (laughs) now chad um had you seen kiss kiss bang bang before i hadn't no and would you like to tell us how it went down for you? So, I do not. I've done this before. I, I want to make your job harder because that's delightful. <laughs> I always say it, at best the show is a conversation. At worst, it's an interview. So uh. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going for worst. So, yeah. I, I had no expectations other than it's a Brian Fry recommended movie, which can run the gamut of... <laughs> of movies from pitch perfect to ice harvest and this fell into the ice harvest category it's like oh this makes sense this is a brian fry movie it is a brian fry movie for sure yeah had had he not seen this and i had gotten to it first like you know who would enjoy this brian (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i am with you chad i had never seen this before and i had a hard time like Maybe it's just because I had a hard time following it because, again, when you have a baby man in the house, he uh, cries, he he interrupts you, and you have to break it up into segments. So the first time I watched this, I, I left with many questions saying, like, does this really all connect? And then I I took a much better, more focused second pass through. Much needed. It made a little more sense to me, but it still didn't quite all... It's not tight. And so it's enjoyable in tone. The experience is fun. But as uh, the plot goes, a little bit shaky. So mixed mixed reviews for me. I, I I guess if I were going to contend, if I were going to be contentious with that statement, I would say that it is possible to understand what happened in one watching. Yeah, I, I understood it. However, there are still aspects to the plot, nuances and pieces that I still see today that I'm like, oh, I get that way better now. So I get it. It's definitely not something that you can walk away from. Like this is something you... You have, unless you know what's going on beginning to end, you've got to, you know, really, really glue yourself to this movie to understand all the fractured pieces. And that's part of it. Like, part of the the glamour of this movie is 
it's putting together fractured pieces. Yeah. I mean, I watched this with my wife and things that I thought were pretty spelled out for you. She goes, what was with Harmony's dad at the end? Why was that necessary? Yeah, they uh, they mentioned it. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna save some of that. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, you're gonna want to go watch the movie, and come back, and enjoy it because there will be spoilers that lie ahead. We will be back after this. It is one of the possible realities of your president, Donald J. Trump, here from the White House. I've been working tirelessly with Vice President Kanye West on passing a bill where we will build a beautiful bridge to Mexico. Yes, we're going to build it right across the Gulf of Mexico to connect the state of Florida to the country of Mexico. When I'm not building bridges, I listen to my favorite podcast, The Retro Movie Roundtable. Please take a moment of your time to support the tremendous show by subscribing, rating, reviewing the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, wherever your podcasts come from, even if they're from Mexico. Those five-star ratings help people find the show. Like the show on Facebook and email at RetroMovieRoundtable at Yahoo.com. Also tell a friend about the show. I told my good friend Angela Merkel to listen to the show. She's an incredible woman who I deeply respect. Angela is now a huge fan of the show. I have to run. I'm late for my interview at CNN. Kanye and I are then going to go golfing with my good friend, Porter Jim Acosta. I really love Jim. Remember, America, we're in this together. Okay, and we're back. And... For those who haven't seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang since 2005 and need a little refresher, Chad, do you want to help people refresh their memories? So Robert Downey Jr.'s Harry Lockhart is a petty crook that, while running from the cops during a crime gone wrong, winds up auditioning for a private investigator role. Oh, and he's also the narrator, so he interrupts the movie with reminders like this one for things he neglected to mention. At a Hollywood party, he's introduced to Val Kilmer's Perry Van Shrike, an openly gay private investigator hired to give Harry on-the-job experience. Characters throughout the film call him Gay Perry because he is indeed gay, and so that's how we might on occasion refer to him throughout this podcast. We're not calling out his sexuality, we're just referring to the character. Harry runs into his childhood crush, Harmony Lane, who is an aspiring actress and therefore had a messed up childhood. He lies to her and tells her he's a detective but loses a shot with Harmony, getting drunk and sleeping with her friend. During a stakeout at a cabin, Gay Perry and Harry witness a car being dumped in the lake and soon discover there's a corpse inside. Harry and Perry are spotted by the two men responsible for dumping the body. Meanwhile, Harmony's sister has come to Los Angeles and has apparently committed suicide. Harmony calls Harry and pleads with him to investigate. Harry is stalked by the two thugs who beat him and try to get him to quit investigating the lakeside murder. After having his finger cut off by Harmony, long story and the plot summary needs to be short so I'll skip it, Harry winds up at a thug's house and shoots him while Gay Perry had his own encounter with the second thug whom a street vendor shoots. Man, LA's gun laws do not appear to be working here. (laughs) It's revealed that the original corpse is Veronica Dexter, the daughter of Harlan Dexter, a Hollywood socialite. She was institutionalized and replaced by a double to resolve an inheritance dispute between her and her father, and then Harlan had his daughter killed. Harry and Perry are captured by Harlan but escape, killing several of Dexter's thugs along the way. Both Perry and Harry are shot, but Harry manages to kill Dexter, bringing the body count to 13. It's always 13. In a tragic wrap-up, turns out Harmony's sister actually did commit suicide when she walked in on Harlan having sex with his daughter's imposter, whom she believed to be his actual daughter. Oh yeah, 
Harmony had lied to her sister a long time ago that her, their sexually abusive father wasn't her sister's real dad and insinuated it to be Harlan Dexter. Probably shouldn't have left that out. Her sister killed herself thinking this was another father figure having sex with his daughter. Dark stuff. The movie ends with Perry slapping Harmony's bedridden father who cannot defend himself, but that's a little strange, so I'll just mention Harry goes on to work for Perry and thanks the viewers for watching. Vanish. Vanish. Well done. This was unbeknownst to me, but this is actually a Christmas movie, isn't it? Yep, yes. it is a Christmas movie. I did not realize that, and maybe we should have saved this for December, but hey, you can listen to this podcast anytime you want to, so enjoy it now in the middle of May when we drop it, and then on the other hand, go back and enjoy it uh, again in December. So uh, it's a Christmas movie in L.A., and uh, it doesn't seem like a Christmas movie because L.A. just makes it things not seem like Christmas to me. I'm from the cold part of the country, so to me, when I see Florida, Texas... California have Christmas it, it doesn't really seem like Christmas to me something something's taken away from it you hear that this is another one of those movies that I like bringing up to people who are really looking for like it's a wonderful life to your answer for best Christmas movie so I'm like ah kiss kiss bang bang for all those people still gremlins oh yeah it were folks folks who get mad it's like die hard it's like all right fine lethal weapon <laughs> I did have uh I had my wife watch die hard and she agreed. She's like, that's a Christmas movie. It's played throughout. It's a Christmas movie. So it's resolved. Yes. Uh, yep. Well, I mean, if, if you enjoy a movie at Christmas time with your family and it gives you the good spirits that you want to have, I mean, why not? It can be a Christmas movie. So, Fry, you're, from, you're very familiar with this one. Is this one that you like to return to at the holiday season? Uh, it's not one I specifically return to in the holiday season. This is just a movie I return to because I enjoy it. Okay. It doesn't necessarily overwhelm you with the Christmas spirit either there. <laughs> No, I basically just use it as a weapon for people who get bent out of shape when someone says uh, that over Home Alone or some more traditional Christmas movies. It did anger me. Like I started off thinking, ah, oh, another one? Sleepless in Seattle was Christmas. Ice Harvest was Christmas. <laughs> Yep. We actually released that one at Christmas, so. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, great great point on that. But as a mystery, as far as the mystery, the story goes and the through line, for me, this was a little bit murky, and I alluded to this one in my background. Fry, you've, you've gone through this one the most times, and you've gotten the most out of it. Tell me, is the case itself working for you, or are you enjoying it more from, like, the comedy side? Because that's how I'm able to enjoy it. Just, like, these are enjoyable characters in a fun situation oh it's 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 both i mean i like this kind of style mystery i like the way that robert downey jr and val kilmer play off one another it's probably one of the most enjoyable duos that you get to see in in movies when people can kind of make fun of each other like this and so you know you have that aspect of this and whenever you can have two main actors where there's a not a whole lot you know you'd say robert downey jr is the main character of this and he is but he and val kilmer are very interchangeable for that lead spot in my approximation and i just love the way that they bounce back and forth i'm detecting from you it's like me like you like the tone you like the feeling you like the situations but i was kind of getting that as far as the story goes as far as the mystery is written is that working for you as well because that to me is i mean i'm, I'm putting my cards out early like this part of this part of the movie doesn't go together for me as well, so I'm I'm torn. Like I I have this like I like much of what's happening, but on the other hand, there's this other part. It's like you need to tighten up your writing. I think it's in certain aspects, it's intentionally vague and loose at times because you know, like we said, you know, there 
they're comparing this to a fictional mystery novel and I feel like the illusions that they use within it to say, hey, there's a reason you're not getting all these these strands that are floating around out there. And I think that that's part of the fun of it. There's so many movies now that you can basically guess the ending or you go into it like, ooh, I'm going to guess the ending. So you're always trying to guess who done it and what happened and whatnot. I think this is one of the ways, the, the formula for this movie is one of the ways that you can really keep people guessing because they don't give you much in the beginning of this to even know why the mystery is starting outside of the fact that you have an actor or aspiring actor, thief actor, who is basically put with a private eye and hijinks ensue. See, for me, it was Chekhov's gun. I mean, they mentioned the... Harlan Dexter and Veronica Dexter at the party and mentioned it like, okay, combined with the fact that even though I know him from psych, Corbin Burnson looks like the bad guy. He's the bad guy. Mm. <laughs> so it, that part was apparent for me. I'm kind of with Russell that the mystery was a backseat. I just wanted to enjoy the ride. I didn't really care about the case. I knew it was going to be Corbin Burnson behind everything. Just them calling the, the two characters out at the party it was too obvious for me oh uh, yeah it's, it's a little bit like scooby-doo uh we met we met we meet the guy who runs the uh, amusement park at the beginning and he has frowny eyebrows and then later on we find out all along it was the guy who runs the amusement park old man jenkins <laughs> i would say that outside i mean basically i'm drawing upon probably my earlier remembrance of this movie but yeah the only thing i had ever knew that guy from was major league although you could go in and toss out wild guesses on it because they introduced a lot of people in that opening scene like the guy who found him you know the people he was introduced to the trashy guy that felt her up while she was passed out so i like if you're not trying if you're actually suspending disbelief to to watch this movie i don't think that they give away anything early enough to where you how they tie that around like he doesn't come back into this movie until deep so the hijinks just keep on coming i guess without seeing it fresh again which i can't do now i never really got that feeling from that opening sequence it could have been the the girl named jill that spells her name j-y-l-l-e she should be a killer (laughs) she probably does (laughs) <laughs> and I think there's to some degree of what's what I'm talking about. This is not LA confidential. There's a degree of sloppiness in the beginning, and I think it's part of the style. I think they want to have this Deadpool kind of quality. Obviously, this movie came out before the movie Deadpool was made, but I mean, this quality of breaking the fourth wall and being interchanged and scattered. And they want to portray Harold or Harry as being this very scattered guy. And so the story is being told to you in a very scattered fashion. It makes it a little hard to get your bearings. The first time I went through this movie, I actually was mistaken and i thought perry was in the business and i was not real clear until i don't know in the like they were just jumping out to their lakes and i was like oh wait a minute perry is a detective and this is who he's getting his detective lessons from i somehow missed that again i had a lot going on the first time I don't need these things spelled out for me any better. But like, for instance, if you put them in a car ride out to the lake when he's like, okay, first rule about being a detective is this. Second rule is being this. You can kind of set things up a little better. And I felt like we were really running back and forth and he was going back and telling 
you about the girl who got away and it's scattered on purpose. And I think to your point, Brian, this is a movie that once you've come to love the characters and you've come to like the ride, these are things you're willing to overlook because it's all gone down for you and you've put all the puzzle pieces together. It probably benefits from more patience and going back through it multiple times. That's that tightness that I'm talking about. I'm not sure how tight it is in the first place. And I think you're right in saying maybe they're not asking it to be tight. They're not trying to be. Although there were, there were allusions to L.A. Confidential. There was almost a shot-for-shot scene out of it. It was the revolver scene. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, that's actually a, a common trope. Come on, Russ. Yeah. you got to make his job harder, too. Shared science. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's a common trope, too. The, the, the Russian roulette uh, thing. Well, he says, where is the girl? That's what Russell Crowe says during L.A. Confidential. Ah, wow. Somehow I didn't make the connection for those two things but uh sly eye on your part good point it was still a valid question in both movies <laughs> yeah uh another thing that caught me off guard was keeping track of who's who in it again there's the pink-haired girl there's harmony there's harmony's sister who we never really get a good establishment that she has a sister on there so to me that kind of came out later that was like a bit of a soap opera move of like we're three quarters of the way through the arc of the show and i need something she had a sister they showed them when they were kids in the very beginning did they talks about yes when he says she had a messed up childhood and it shows her sister being taken out of the room it's true i thought that was I, i didn't realize that was a sister again in the flashback i thought that was her so so sarah missed that too so but you see what I'm saying? Like, it's like, I'm having trouble. Who's Perry? Who's the sister? And I mean, that did affect my enjoyment to some degree. And I, I promise you, I'm not the most ADA or ADD viewer. <laughs> Russell needs constant squirrel moments. <laughs> <laughs> a little, a little smiley face that runs across the subtitles at the bottom, like sing along, but like that are also spelling out <laughs> the movie for you. This is the bad guy. He yeah. is talking to the good guy. <laughs> <laughs> you need the deadpool titles of this is her sister bad things are happening to her yeah and so we talked about the tone of this a little bit um you know the ride is probably i think all three of us have said that this is the part that we like the most though what is it about that tone that you like brian because I, th- I think you're a fan of that noir kind of genre as far as the humor goes kind of describe the humor in this one it's, you know, I'm a huge fan of dark comedies. Uh, most of the stuff that comes out of this is joking about basically testy topics. I mean, you look at, you know, the jokes Val Kilmer makes is Gabe Harry uh, is one good example. Harmony and Harry's kind of playing off each other. We're saying like uh, Brazilian, there's like Indian Joe Pesci, Brazilian Steven Seagal. Like they, oh, yes. they the jokes they make on this is kind of one of the, you know, a lot of stuff where it's like, <laughs> like, so it's you know it's it's that kind of humor that's will win awards for being uncouth so it's just it's kind of testing boundaries a little bit it's playing with itself it's i i just really enjoyed the writing of this movie it's my kind of humor it's my brand and that was something that you don't see in a lot of noir film yeah yeah, and I do think that the, it's not beat you across the face, ha, 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 knee slapping, kind of funny. It's kind of a dry, guys making fun of each other kind of yeah. humor. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a little mean-spirited. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's... That's yeah. guy humor. We make fun of each other. Right. 
One of the things that I think that is interesting that they poke fun at along the way is Gay Perry. And it's one of those things where this movie has kind of made it an interesting time. In 2005, we're kind of getting to that transitional point where it's not much longer after this that these kinds of jokes probably aren't even going to be in movies after a certain point you know they're using uh you know the other f word uh they're using uh people who are just very visibly uncomfortable around them so on one hand it's progressive in that gay perry's like disbanding all of these stereotypes because he's he's a tough guy he knows what's going on he's a detective and he's not effeminate at all like you actually would not segregate him as being a quote-unquote gay guy but on the other hand everybody around him is also uncomfortable and kind of homophobic at the same time so it's one of those things where it's just like it's an interesting transitional point where we are at history at this point where it's just like baby steps i guess yes yeah his his character was very interesting that's kind of why i made the point in the the plot summary i was trying to do a poor impression of robert downey jr but nevertheless we will call him Gay Perry because that's the character's name, and it was a it was a part of his character without being like there were no romantic scenes or anything like that. He just he rolled with the punches of yeah I'm gay, so what? He called his gun something that will get me banned from the podcast for a month, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he made references to his gun, and it helped him get out of a pretty bad jam. So that was cool too. It's the one I keep next to my balls. <laughs> I feel like that's another part of this movie that's that like I enjoy more and more as I watch it are little pieces where there's nothing really in the beginning of this movie that doesn't come back into play later. I don't know if that's true. We meet a superfluous blonde actress that has nothing to do with anything that she's in a horror movie. We've got the guy who beats him up. Uh, that doesn't come back later. The friend tangent of... Like, it's not real clear why he sleeps with her friend. That was that was one of my first moments of, like, a head-scratching move. This this movie, actually, I would say, takes a lot of unexpected turns. It's almost like this is where a typical mystery or a typical kind of movie would go, and we're not going to go there. And there's probably about four or five times throughout this movie where they make a real pattern out of saying, like, this is what you think we're going to do, but we're not going to do it. And there's a certain point where it's just like, okay, you're, you're taking that left turn every time, and... Uh, there's a reason movies usually take that other turn sometimes. So um, it's one of those things where they, they really go out of their way to not be cliche. I think if you point out every blade of grass in the yard, then you're missing definitely the flowers. So, you know, they bring the gun back into play. The fact that he has fast reflexes catching things comes back into play multiple times. Even the blonde stewardess that he talks to before anybody else at the bar comes back into play. Almost everything that they really make a earmark point of either telling a chuckle under your breath joke about or... So I feel like they really do earmark things for later, and then not only does it come up once, but possibly twice or more again. Yeah, sleeping with her friend, I think, was just a further hammer home. He's a screw-up. And you're never going to get this girl. Like, you literally are never, like... Yeah. He is so close to getting what he wants and getting the girl, and he keeps messing it up, and that was the whole point with the friend. Yeah, that, that part, that that actually frustrated me at some point. I kind of looked over at Mary, go, like, who was watching with me, and I go, like, what? Why did this happen? So, in a way, in a way, that is a plot point. Even though that character doesn't come back up again, that's a plot point that comes back around over and over again because he still messes up trying to get with the one girl he wants. And there was a, this, this has to do with the scattershot beginning that I was kind of going on, like, 
do we see a reason why he was a thief in the beginning? Like, does he use his thieving skills some to some degree at the end? Because we start with him, like, being an actor, falling into a situation that he's not in. Kind of reminding me of another movie, like, um, Get Shorty. Like, you know, this is somebody who's fallen into a situation that they're not comfortable with. And the next thing you know, they're caught up into this other thing. And in which case, this happens to be the Hollywood scene for him. So he's a thief, a criminal who's fallen into the Hollywood scene and he's just going with it. But do we actually need that whole part? Like, couldn't he just be a guy from the Midwest who went out to LA and then landed in movies? Well, it's, it goes into how he got shot in the first place. And then there was also a certain level of humor about, you know, them actually being held up by just a random woman with a gun from her balcony. And then his emotional instability after seeing his friend get shot and being shot himself running into an audition and actually nailing it because he's all messed up from being shot and literally was in a similar situation with his quote-unquote partner at the time. So these are all plot points that that really do tie in even if you didn't get while they tied in at the beginning. That was the beginning of Lethal Weapon, the ghost spit. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, um, I... As far as a thief, I think he had to have some background that he was ashamed of. They didn't necessarily have to go thief, but it does add to the humor of getting shot. But he needed a reason to lie to Harmony of what he actually was. And he is quick on his feet. Like, the whole thing, like, he is very quick. Not just quick-witted, but he gets himself out of various situations by doing haphazard things quickly that end up falling his way. Or messing up. I mean, you can sometimes just pee on a corpse or, you know, accidentally like Russian roulette somebody and, and use a live round. Hey, man, if you were using the toilet and you casually look over and there's a dead person in your tub, you're telling me you're just going to be like, yeah, I'm just going to finish peeing here before I lose my mind. I, I feel like it would go back inside me at that point. So, <laughs> so yeah. if I if I if I did that, I, I, I honestly but I'm not sure what I would do, but I'm pretty sure I don't go Ace Ventura all over the bathroom. that was a great scene (laughs) yeah ace ventura by the way that that oh that totally unveiled like when you walk into a nasty bathroom you're just like why is it like this and i saw ace ventura i was like oh well now i know why (laughs) (laughs) fry plot points or plot discussion did you like the um relationship dynamic that evolves between harmony and harry do you like that uh part of the game I would say that having seen it as much as I have, my biggest point on that is that it was really one of those relationships that needed to never happen. Like, that was a a pseudo-driving force of this film. Um, and I think that's definitely... Like, if they had gotten together in the end of this, that would have been probably a death nail to it. They really weren't that clear about it, were they? Like, did they? what, what happened to Harmony at the end of this? Um, I know she went back to Indiana for her sister's funeral, and that's when Perry was smacking the yeah, uh, convalescent dad, but I think that was basically it for that, and then Harry stayed in L.A. and worked with Perry. Yep. So I, was, yeah, I wasn't clear on that. Like, are they together? Is she, like, working with them? Or, like, I mean... No. I... Or she just moved on her own way, and he said, oh, that's the one that got away, but it's probably for the best that she got away. I wasn't real clear on which of those three it was. She broke the pact, so it was over. Okay, so so that, that did seal the deal and they were done at that point. Because he seemed to be back head over heels again over her later. So I wasn't sure about that. 
He seems sad. He doesn't want her to die. <laughs> now, Chad, what about you? What, are, what was your take on the ride as we were talking about, like the tone of the movie? I liked that Harmony was smarter than Harry. And they reinforced that several times of she's unexpectedly smart for the background that she's had. She's terrible beer commercials and a lot of risque decisions but she's actually quite intelligent and harry is confirmed multiple times to be an absolute idiot the revolver he's like that's an eight percent chance eight percent who taught you math so (laughs) so you know um that she corrects him on adverbs Uh, i love that i love the grammar i love blue perfect being thrown in then he tried to use the same thing and failed Yeah. yeah everyone being smarter than Harry is great. Uh, Perry correcting him, saying, that's not an adverb. So, uh, yeah, I, I wanted more of those jokes to continue, but I, I love the relationships in this, and I really think, if I hit it earlier, that's why it works. I, Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer together are just fantastic. Which brings us to, Fry, do you want to give us a cast rundown here? Absolutely. Now, this is going to be pretty brief because there aren't a lot of people that are vitally essential to this. So we're going to start with Robert Downey Jr.'s Harry Lockhart and then Val Kilmer's Gay Perry. We also have Michelle Monaghan as Faith Harmony or Harmony Faith Lane. Corbin uh, Burnson as Harlan Dexter. Dash Miak as Mr. Frying Pan. Larry Miller as Dabney Shaw. Rockman Dunbar as Mr. Fire. And I'm going to toss this in here just for fun, and it's uh, Shannon uh, Sosaman as the pink-haired girl, just because she's pretty, and I like her. All of that was accurate. <laughs> she's the important double, so she, she is. I wanted more from this hitman, Mr. Frying Pan and uh, Mr. Fire. They were fun. I did like. They it. were also very funny. Like there was still a, there was a good witty repartee between the two of them as well. I could have used a little more of them in this. We first get a glimpse of them at the lake, but they have their mask on, so we don't really get to enjoy the characters until much, much, much later. And when they come in, they're bickering back and forth nature of, they kind of have that same dynamic that you were talking about with Harry and Gay Perry, where like, you know, they're kind of correcting each other and arguing with each other. And they have a pretty good dynamic themselves. And I, I would I would like a little more of Mr. Frying Pan and, and Mr. Heat. Mr. Fire. Yep. Yeah, Mr. sorry, Fire. Mr. Fire, yes. Yeah, out of the frying pan into the fire was great. Mm-hmm. Or Mr. Mustard, as he was also called. <laughs> Mike and Ike and Mustard. Uh, what is that, actually? They they were talking about, that's an obscure reference. I'm like, that is an obscure reference. I don't know that reference. Uh, some kind of sexual innuendo. I don't want to go in Urban Dictionary and figure it out. Oh, is it? Okay, well. That's what I was re- led to believe, and I think uh, IMDB backed it up. Oh, okay. It was actually something that I had meant to look into, and I completely forgot about it. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah, we can't read that, so let's move along. <laughs> this, I think one of the big things that's about this movie is that this is kind of Robert Downey Jr.'s comeback road. And he had fallen off on hard times with addiction. He had become an unreliable commodity in Hollywood, and people didn't really want to touch him. And it was one of those things where he not only was in a movie, but he was the lead role in this movie. And while it didn't gross tons and tons of money at the box office, this kind of restored faith in him. And it's an important stepping stone for him and his career. And uh, he said, at least at one point, he said that this was his favorite movie that he had done. Who knows? Without this movie, John Favreau said that this was very pivotal or a reason why he was influenced to cast 
Robert Downey Jr. in the role of his career as Iron Man. So Favreau goes to make Iron Man without Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He is Robert Downey Jr. going to be your Iron Man otherwise. So it's a pretty important movie in Robert Downey Jr.'s career path. And I think that's one of the things that people who like Robert Downey Jr. by default should really appreciate this movie. Oh, yeah. This this film that made no money led to him making billions. <laughs> <laughs> Fry, are you, a, are you a Robert Downey Jr. fan? Uh, yeah, I think he's very good. I would say that, you know, I've I enjoyed his comedies at a young age. I've... I would say that even before he had made his big like MCU comeback comeback roles like the principal and Charlie Bartlett and, and others were really glue that make his personality on screen. And so, yeah, I would say yes, absolutely. Yeah. I didn't know him from pretty much before he screwed up and kind of got blacklisted for a while, but I can remember being old enough that they were advertising him coming on Ally McBeal TV show. And so I actually did tune in and figured out, eh, who is this guy? What's he doing? Why is he back? And I enjoyed his part on that otherwise forgettable TV series. So yeah, I've, I've been a fan of his. I think he was good at playing a jerk before the hand, but I think one of the things that this movie does, or you're starting to see the seeds of this, I think one of Robert Downey Jr.'s best traits as an actor is his pace he's very quick he's very quick with his words he has a lot of precision with them and i mean iron man or sherlock holmes and where his career goes after this 100 percent starts to capitalize on these characters are kind of jerks and they move very quickly and they have a very dry wit to them but i mean in a way you can see how this leads to that career path that he will later take agreed oh yeah i mean you need Tony Stark. Tony Stark was created as a character no one should like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. But at the same time, you have to be a certain degree of likable at the same time. I mean, depending on the roles that I was going through, I mean, you know, he's still capable of doing that. Other times, he's just not a likable guy. I mean, and he's just he's just a jerk. Like, he's a jerk in weird science. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Warner Brothers was willing to produce the movie with a larger budget uh, if Harrison Ford was going to play the detective. And, uh, you know... And separately, under a different thing, alternatively, Johnny Knoxville was set to star as Harry Lockhart, which is, you know, the role that Robert Downey Jr. got. Other considerations included Benicio Del Toro for Harry and Hugh Grant for Gay Perry. So, Brian, do you want to see uh, Harrison Ford uh, in the role of the detective and Johnny Knoxville as Harry? All due respect to these other actors, um, I think they did it right the way they did it. I think Harrison Ford would be hilarious as Gay Perry. I don't think it would work at all uh and i can't ever see a marquee with harrison ford and johnny knoxville co-starring together yeah i was gonna say that 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 billing was not necessarily what was gonna happen these were just separate things at separate times (laughs) i hope so but hugh grant wouldn't have lent the same kind of gravitas as val kilmer either hugh grant's not exactly intimidating yeah i don't want to see johnny knoxville on this one at all Although he he was in the movie I just saw, we sent in the darkness, and he was uh, he was a bad guy. Any other casting comments you wanted to bring up? I don't like seeing Benicio del Toro in starring roles at all. I mean, maybe as a side character or as a secondary. I could see him more for Gay Perry possibly than Harry. That's an odd choice. They realized that, and that didn't happen. So, <laughs> um, yeah. 
Val Kilmer actually met Ryan Downey Jr. for the first time at a Hollywood party, and a week later he received the screenplay for this film, and he agreed to do it before he even finished reading it. So upon agreeing to do it with much delight, he was informed that Robert Downey Jr. had already been cast. So it's one of those things where I don't know when they tell that story, if party made it happen or if they knew it was going to happen, and then Robert Downey Jr. went out of his way to meet him. So it's kind of one of those chicken or egg kind of things where it's like, huh, either way, that's pretty neat. Yeah, he said he had to lose... 50 pounds for this movie yeah absolutely yeah val was kind of heavy at this point yeah he wasn't in batman shape at this point he was in uh, <laughs> alexander shape and nobody's in good shape when they're in alexander it's just uh that's a bad movie he actually dropped 50 pounds for this movie from alexander weight he had to get into better shape to be uh, the cool detective guy there was a reference for that though because he referenced colin farrell taking harry's part it's like oh, oh good point no. yeah that's a right. connection I actually was expecting and a little disappointed we didn't get a Colin Farrell cameo at some point. Like, that would have been nice at the party or something like that. And then had uh, Harry said something to Colin Farrell and the guy would have been like, what's that guy's deal? Or who's he? <laughs> who, who, who is he? <laughs> Man, lost opportunity. I could see him being the, the handsy guy with harmony. And although the film leads us to believe that characters played by Robert Downey Jr. and Michelle Monaghan grew up together, there's actually an 11-year age difference between them. And that was another one of those things that was kind of sitting there, kind of making me go, like, maybe they need to get an older actress than uh, Michelle Monaghan. Yeah, they did not look like they were growing up together. I don't know if you uh, count all the the drugs and stuff. That could kind of age (laughs) man. I assume she had some drugs, too, given her backstory. Yeah. No, she had sex. (laughs) (laughs) Counts. <laughs> keeps you young i guess um, <laughs> um and then another fun casting comment here is uh lawrence fishburne uh morpheus from the matrix was the voice of the bear in the fake commercial yes he was so the film is based very loosely on bodies are where you find them by brett halliday the film was strongly influenced by other works from raymond chandler as well uh the original film title in this one was you'll never die in this town again which i kind of like that uh, when Harmony is seen on the bus leaving at age 16, she falls asleep with a Johnny Gossamer book labeled You'll Never Die in This Town Again on her lap. So that was a fun tip of the hat there. Again, this has a tradition steeped in this kind of pulp novel kind of thing. Did you feel like th- those elements of that old mid-century uh, pulp novels are kind of in- injected into this, that noir thing that you love so much, Brian? Oh, certainly. And, and that is why I like it so much is there's, there's so much there. It's such a fun genre to play with. And when you can add to it, uh, with, uh, how they did so many things in this movie that are different from that traditional setup, I think it just makes it better. What makes a noir really, when you think about it, because for me, and I am admittedly kind of tend to put it in a different era. Like I think Maltese Falcon, you know, I think, you know, 1940s, very black and white, high contrast, where, you know, your black blacks are very shadowy. And then um, you have this woman who's all trouble comes into the picture. And certainly private eyes are a part of this as well. But when you advance that to today's time, what, is, what makes it a noir for you in today's time? I see noir movies as incorporating frequent flashbacks. I think that's an essential piece to it. Um, I think they're usually fairly complex uh, plots, and I think that falls into where you were having a hard time really sinking into it. I also think that that cynical heroes, which you clearly have in this, are another piece to it. So I'd say those are my three earmarks 
of what makes a, a noir film. But yeah, there's there's there are other aspects to it, but uh, I would say those are the three things that I take from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that I would also associate with other noir films. Narration is a big part of it for me. Uh, when I think of the old detective movies, you hear the, the voice of the main character explaining things to you or talking through the scene outside of it. So mm. yeah, that's a big part for me. Yeah. Now this is Shane Black's directorial debut. He'd been a writer. Uh, he's most known for writing Lethal Weapon movies uh, up until this point. So what do you think about Shane Black and his first go as a director? Uh, I mean, obviously I love this movie, so uh, it's a success for him. So those elements that you're talking about, noir as a director, do you feel like he's bringing that into the modern times in a way that you like to see? Certainly. And then, like I already said, you know, this is this is a very dark comedy, and that's an another genre that I really appreciate. So him bringing it's a blending of two of my favorite parts of film, and the fact that he did it well. And as well as I feel he did, just kind of makes this a diamond out there that there are very few others like it. And I would say nothing that's to its level for it, that level of you know the black comedy mixed with noir aspects. Yeah, I don't like this guy. <laughs> I wish he'd stopped after this movie. Because uh, next in line is Iron Man 3, which I, Russell and I have had many conversations about. It's the worst Iron Man. Iron Man 2, I will watch a dozen times. Nope, Iron Man 2 is worse. Yeah. Uh, He made The Predator, the awful, awful, awful version with uh, Key from Key and Peele and Olivia Munn as a scientist, which was even less believable than Denise Richards. (laughs) uh, She's a nuclear psychologist. (laughs) Christmas Jones. It's just... Christmas Jones. He needed to stop. Like, this is his masterpiece, and... uh, it looks like a fluke at this point. Well, writing Lethal Weapon gets you a lot of credibility, doesn't it? Yeah, he's he's a good writer. Lethal Weapon, Monster Squad, Last Action Hero. Great writer. Do that more. Well, he wrote and directed this one. Uh, Dude, The Nice Guys was awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, for me, actually, as far as the director goes, I think The Nice Guys is shows a progression i see shane black progressing and maturing as a director when he goes on to the nice guy so i'm with brian the nice guy is awesome i have not seen that due to the other the other movies oh you should and it's it's a very noirish film as well i'm skeptical it's set in the 70s instead of now it is it is a detective kind of private eye kind of movie and it is also dark in tone and there's also humorous elements so uh it's interesting how I was actually surprised to see both of these movies were made by the same person because they were very much cut from the same cloth and they're so far apart. I'm kind of going like, wow, return to your um, comfort zone, I see. (laughs) Right. Yeah, he can keep making movies like this all he wants. Fair enough, but don't mess with any established franchises. Is that our role for him? (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, Robert Downey Jr., I think, helped him get Iron Man 3. As a director, yeah, I mean, right. it was a big thank you because, again, I, I think Robert Downey Jr. is fully aware. I don't think he gets to be Iron Man and thus probably afford a much larger house or multiple larger houses and nicer cars and, you know, be loved again without Shane Black taking that chance on him. Because, like I said, he was kind of damaged goods at the time. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, this was this was a big turning point for him. And I think it's also telling. I think he said in an interview at one point, this is his favorite movie of with himself in it. Yeah. So I feel like when you have the laundry list of film that Downey Jr. has done, 
to say this is his favorite when it's easily one of his most obscure is is very telling. I thought it was U.S. Marshals. <laughs> um, Why did you kill that boy? Sequels that didn't need to happen. I still they watched did it. get my money. <laughs> if they made a U.S. If they, if they make another Tommy Lee Jones, uh, you know, fugitive U.S. Marshal movie, I will watch it. <laughs> I'll watch it if it has Wesley Snipes from Demolition Man. Wesley um, Pipes. What do you have to say, Teddy Bear? Um, he needs money, so I, I don't think he's saying no to much right now. <laughs> yeah, I do. Simon says die. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Shane Black also mentioned that he had a hard time getting this made. Uh, he, not only had he written the uh, length of weapon things, but those were kind of in his rearview mirror. And he said that did not give him the leeway or credibility to just roll in and get a big budget. So it kind of helped that Downey Jr. was a good bang for your buck investment. And uh, Val Kilmer was also not like tearing it up at this point in his career either. So it was kind of a proving ground for everybody and everybody kind of came out of this better. I'll also say a couple other things for him. And, you know, we briefly touched upon his writing. I like the last Boy Scout was a movie that I had a lot of fun with as well as the long kiss goodnight. So he really did a lot of stuff in the action genre you know, starting with Lethal Weapon, where it has that comedy piece. Uh, Last Boy Scout has its co- comedic moments. Long Kiss Goodnight here and there. But then when he actually gets to direct the stuff that he writes, like, I feel like that's where the gems come out with his writing. Like Iron Man 3. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, sorry. Uh, Shane Black also did a really interesting thing as he was presenting this movie he did through chapters of a book and so that was kind of a reflection of the pulp novels that he had done and those titles were very pulpy titles they were actually taken from chapter titles from Raymond Chandler works and those detective novels as well so things like chapter one trouble is my business day two the lady in the lake three the little sister like these ambiguous things that kind of were like a fun little lead of where things were going. I did like that style that he had done in this. They give you a piece of what's to come. And I, I did like that. And it was ambiguous enough to kind of be like, ooh, what's, what's this? Sure. Now, the character Harry is very jumbled. And the story is also presented in a somewhat jumbled way. They break the fourth wall a lot in this movie. They, at one point, cut the movie and stop the still frame like as if the projector has actually stopped and he's talking to you. Fry, you haven't mentioned it. Did you actually like this this actually goes into my change one thing, but I'll go ahead and drop it now. I don't mind people or uh, directors doing this. It's totally fine. It's not a thing that I do or don't need. I do think that they may have overdone it a little bit on this one, but, you know, it's it's not an insurmountable thing. See, I, I'm the opposite. I actually thought they dropped the narration and the fourth wall breaking towards the end of the movie. And it felt different to me, tonally. So I wanted it to continue throughout. I, I didn't think it was a common thread and should have been. I'm with one of you two, and I, you're both right. And It's like either do it or don't do it. And uh, they really go heavy in the beginning. And it's this very unique style. So it's like a big, bold move. It could be the thing that makes this such a unique movie. But then they kind of stop doing it. And they, they kind of veer away from it. I think that only happened because you like he, he could only bring you to the present. I guess. Like, there was a lot of backstory he had to feed, but then once you get to the present, you're seeing what the narration would have been. Like, if he was, if there were a part two of this movie, then 
anything that would have happened at the end of this movie would have been the heavy narration at the beginning of part two. Interesting. Maybe. Maybe. I always think that there's an opportunity for little, you know, sprinkled jokes about what's happening in the moment. Like it would be a more comedy approach. There's no doubt about it. So like you would like when 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 being held hostage. Oh, I, no, like, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I remember being in this situation. You kind of know he's going to get out of it because he's narrating it to you. But like basically being more playful with it. I just I, I think that if they continued on with it just for the sake of continuing on with it, it would be its own like it would stand out on its own as not being the same as what they were using it for before it does, does that make yeah. sense like it would almost stand out more that they all right so it started as this but now you're going into just making jokes about the present you could still skip time of okay they're in a warehouse well how did we get here and you know show them bribing guards or using magic tricks or anything like that but yeah i get your point <laughs> I thought it was an interesting thing that the actual pool party that, that was at the beginning takes place at Harlan Dexter's residence was actually shot at Shane Black's mansion. So not only is he the writer, the director, but he's also the host of the movie. Black was pretty infamous for throwing large, extravagant Hollywood parties at the house filled with all kinds of industry bigwigs, much like this. He knew how to throw a party. Party. Yeah, that's a pretty sweet residence. Yes. For mostly writer. Well, you're right, Lethal Weapon. I'm not sure. And plus, you get to cash in off of the sequels. I, I think he did two and three as well. I'm pretty sure you're set after that. Yeah. Plus, they tried that TV show, too. So yeah. I'm sure you got a chunk oh. of that, too. He made a lot of money <laughs> off of uh, Mel Gibson's Bad Mullet. <laughs> <laughs> that mullet got more fierce and Braveheart later, too. That was that was period accurate, accurate mullet. Was it? No. Oh. I was going to say, I don't think anything was beautiful. accurate. No, they were in Scotland. Yeah. He was in a bunch of these movies too, like Predator, Hunt for Red October, Robocop 3. I was halfway thinking that this movie might be fun if we set it back in the 50s, like when the pulp novels are a hot commodity. Obviously, the cell phone game changes completely when you go that direction. You can't do that. But would this movie be, is this movie more fun if we shoot it? Uh, in a retro era or do you like it here in the present more uh becomes a whole lot more scary for like gay it. perry if you said it in the 1950s it's los angeles <laughs> it flies <laughs> i like the progression of making these movies relevant today there's nothing that says a noir movie needs to be black and white i was listening to a uh uh, another podcast, it was a video podcast talking about some of the misconceptions that are uh, frequent in non-heavy moviegoers. And they were like, well, a noir movie, that means it's got to at least be black and white, right? And I'm just like, oh, jeez. So there's a stigma around on some films, especially among laymen, where it's like, let's prove it wrong. Let's bring it back. Let's make a whole run of these things now because... Why does it have to have an, a heyday 40, 50 years ago when we can still play with it today and be successful? There's truth in that. But at the same time, I think the movie that you had us watch with Ice Harvest back uh, before, which was a modern noir, felt like it was inhabiting this dark world. And there was a dark, shadowy nature to it. And there was this rusty, cold grit to it that I do associate with noirs, you know, Something like L.A. Confidential, which, yes, it's sunny California, but they put all these filters on it that made this have this golden wash. And there were no reds, no greens, no blues. It was very yellow, very shadowy as well. And um, I, there, there are these stylistic moves where noir does tend to have this visual style that kind of gives you that world of darkness. And this is a dark world. And this movie didn't necessarily 
have that per se. It's 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 Hollywood. I mean, what percentage of this movie happened during the daytime? I mean, I'll just start there. Like, I bet there is eighty-five to ninety percent nighttime versus ten percent day. True, true. But I mean, things are very fully illuminated, though. Is what I'm saying. There's not a lot of dark darks in terms of its contrast levels and stuff like. Mm. Yeah, I like the modern day setting. I I like when they try and do something new. I liked when Sin City was more modern day. Oh yeah. Dude, love Sin City. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And then especially their use of uh, color, like when to have it and when to omit it was awesome. That's what I'm getting at. The visual choice of that. And I was questioning if we're doing noir today. LA Confidential did do something like that with the filters. Sin City did do that. Should uh, Ice Harvest made that choice as well. This movie didn't do that as much in terms of its color palette, in terms of its use of lighting so i i'm asking myself could it have should it have i think there's some interesting pieces especially with swimming pools at the beginning and harry and and the blues they choose to use the contrast of harmony's skin to the red bra she's always wearing i mean that's always a fairly earmarked piece of this like if it really keeps throughout the entire movie pink hair is also a recurring theme piece to this and that's a a stark contrast to everything else is going on i think that maybe just because they didn't settle on one thing and then hammer it out throughout it they just kind of uh cherry picked a couple things they liked and then went on with it and that's you know again that's just that's one part of film noir that you know you you've associated with it but it's not the sole part so it doesn't need to have every aspect true very true I feel like he does a much better job of that again in The Nice Guys, though, later. I mean, I feel like that is tonally. Mm-hmm. I mean, he nails. I mean, yes, it's set in the 70s, but I mean, I think I think he I just saying this is his first movie. That's all I'm saying. Uh, second down the line, third, fourth, whatever. He he shows growth later and he, he does learn and I think better master those things. Well, from a differentiation standpoint, I can say that at least from what I remember, uh, Nice Guys happens almost exclusively during daytime. In the same density that this happens at night, that happens today, like 80, 20, 85, 15. I don't want to go too down that road, but interesting uh, comment on that as well. That that's a, That is an interesting contrast as well. What do you think about the soundtrack, Chad? Uh, I thought it was pretty cool that Robert Downey Jr. actually composed part of the soundtrack. I I liked the allusions for uh, Perry with the I Will Survive. And I really liked the soundtrack being paired with the kind of Bond-esque opening credits. I thought that was really cool, too. Yes, more playful, perhaps. More of a um, whimsical, jazzy, detective sneaking around kind of thing. Not Not so much smooth, chic. Yes, I see what you're saying. And that that's appropriate for the tone of the movie as well. Yeah, I definitely really enjoyed the uh, um, the intro scene to this. I thought that was a lot of fun. And I'm blanking on the name of the movie. I think it was, was it called Part-Time Crooks? The one with the silhouette eating a cookie? This is something Chad just hit me with when he was talking about it. And it just popped into my head. But it's got that... That sleuthy, but you know it's not going to be hardcore sleuth. It's going to be lighthearted or at least somewhat comedic. And part-time... I want to say it was called Part-Time Crooks. Speaking of sleuth, check out Sleuth on our podcast. Completely different movie, but yes, that's a very good movie. Small-time Crooks. It was Small-time Crooks. (laughs) Small-time Crooks. It was a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. 
All right. This movie also shares a song title with the soundtrack of a James Bond movie from Thunderball in 1965. Huge Bond fan. And uh, when I heard Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I thought there'd be some connection to Bond or some kind of more Bond-like aspect of the movie than this. And there's obviously it's a detective and there's sleuthing. But on the other hand, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is actually kind of a term for the genre of that espionage kind of thing. And that kind of comes from Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was recorded. It's a song that Shirley Bassey, who's uh, does a number of the Bond song openings, then later Dionne Warwick actually performs it with composer John Barry, who does a lot of Bond scores. Later, they released that song with the Thunderball soundtrack, but it did not become the Bond song. They got cold feet. They renamed the movie Thunderball, and uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was just a term that kind of went what Bond is, and he was known as Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang overseas. Thunderball is a much better title for a Bond film. And he strikes like thunder. <laughs> but what do I know? I'm just a bear. I bite the heads off fish. <laughs> I did not catch that was Lawrence Fishburne until I saw the actual credits. <laughs> I feel like I should have. Yeah, there's great potential for voice work for that, for that guy. And Well, the, the museum was really cool to me. The, the live performing art museum. I thought the lighting was cool. The... Uh, a lot of the glass exhibits with the demon like women that are moving around and uh even they had a allusion to the exorcist in the background so there were a lot of cool things in there yeah i i did enjoy mm-hmm. that and i actually enjoyed the mid-century home the modernist home that shane black had for his residence where the party was thrown very much hollywood the other one was the scene where the pink-haired girl is murdered is we do have this really strong feeling for los angeles on this one i don't feel like it's christmas but i sure feel like it's los angeles that house was really nice mm-hmm. hitmen are doing well in this economy <laughs> well was that her house or the hitman's house I, I think it was the hitman's house well if you look at harmony man she had a place right on the beach when robot guy broke in yeah she yeah. was a failed actress yeah that that did surprise me i was like a failed actress don't you have like three roommates and you live in like a crappy part of town it's the same thing that happens in so many of these different movies where, you know, you've got to have the hot car no matter what their profession is. I always think about Aaron Eckert and Battlefield Los Angeles. Like, I'm about to be a retired uh, staff sergeant in the Marine Corps. Super nice. I don't know if he had like a Dodge Charger or a you know classic Mustang or something. I'm like, yeah, I'm certain you could afford that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like my wife likes watching house hunters and all those things it's like i'm an elementary school teacher and my husband paints potatoes our budget is 1.2 million dollars what <laughs> but yeah i mean it's uh all the homes were very very nice and also throwing in terms like modernist throwing around his architecture okay that was the light version yeah i i'm i'm hairy in this role house is pretty lots of windows well, uh, you guys ready to hand out some awards? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Chad, why don't you take this one first? Who's your MVP? Robert Downey Jr. I, I don't see this movie working as well without him and his narration. Brian, are you going with Robert Downey Jr. as well? Uh, I actually went with Val Kilmer on this one, but I totally get it. Okay. And uh, why, why Val Kilmer? I think that Val Kilmer's gay Perry character was 
the most unique part of this movie in the way that Robert Downey Jr.'s kind of effed upness in terms of him being klutzy and kind of stupid, Val Kilmer's cool collect uh, persona and knowing what he's doing, but all of it in the end came down to Downey Jr. having, a, I guess, this particular set of skills, or at least, or at the very least, luck that actually made him worth working with later on, you know, at the, the outset of this. So clearly they both had something to bring to the table, regardless of all the trouble that Downey Jr.'s mouth gets him into. I'm going to throw you off because of how I asked the question. I picked Val Kilmer as well. <laughs> I was torn. Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm with you. I think the best scenes have gay Harry in it. That's just a fact. And I'm not as into the scenes where Harry and Harmony are together as I am when Perry and Harry are together. Like maybe some degree of preparing himself to write the nice guys with this duo, but those kind of, well, I guess pseudo detective and other detective combo, that to me is where the strength of this movie lies. And I didn't realize it until the second time through, but I was like, you know what? This movie is riding high with Val Kilmer in it. So he gets my MVP. We will disagree on the best scenes point later on. Okay. Okay. Uh, best supporting though, Chad. <laughs> Val Kilmer has to be. For all the reasons you guys have stated, he was great, and I was torn whether it was MVP or best supporting. Okay, and uh, now, Brian, who's your best supporting? Robert Downey Jr. I mean, this is one of those you can't have one without the other kind of things. This is, whoever your 1A and 1B are, it really doesn't matter in this uh, movie. See, see, you, 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 you copped out on that one. See, I, I was bold, and I just picked one, and... I, I, I gave Robert Downey Jr. the uh, shaft on the other one. So uh, I went with... Oh, okay. Yeah, it's okay. Um, I went with... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I went with Dabney, though. The, the um, Larry Miller, who plays Dabney. And I, I liked his character early in the movie, and I was really sad we lost him because he had this um, sharpness to him that was, I guess, kind of the cruel Hollywood casting side of things that I, I did like uh, that picked up on that film world i liked the audition scene in the beginning quite a bit with him in it we don't see him after the party it's it's too bad he's only mentioned after that but small presence wish he had been in it more chad who's your hidden gem yeah see if i can make russell fall out of a chair i'm going with ariel winter who plays the young harmony she's seven-year-old harmony so this is a kid actor that i'm saying hey she's cool she did a good job wow Mark it down. Like, this is... I, I'd say Chad... Put it on the board. Yeah, I was going to say, Chad should give us a top 10 child actors uh, countdown. The problem is he can't do it because he hasn't. He can't think of 10 child acting performances he liked. I, yeah, I did make a top 10 most obnoxious kids. That's not what movies. I want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Okay, great. What about the kid in Iron Man 3? hate that kid. Gosh, you're, you're all... Heartless, heartless. He was the worst part of that movie. I hate that kid. Brian, who is your hidden gem? Uh, I went with Dash Miak. He was uh, one of the uh, terrible two hitman. Yes. Hitmen, excuse me. Uh, he's been in a lot of movies that I really like, and he's typically pretty far in the background. He was in Silver Linings Playbook, Romeo and Juliet, Day After Tomorrow. He's just one of those guys that I just, I like him. He's one of those people that when he is a small part or even a bigger part in a movie, I'm like, ah, oh, I love that guy. And I rarely remember his name, so I apologize for that. But he is somebody that I tend to notice in movies when I see him. And whenever he gets a chance, I'm like, sweet. 
Well, I'm going to pick up the other half of that good duo, and I'm going to go with uh, Rockman Dunbar, who plays Mr. Fire. So you went with Mr. Frying Pan, I'll go with Mr. Fire. I only picked him because I felt like, over the other one, because I felt like he had that extra scene with the pink-haired girl. I kind of liked it when he was still cocky. He was like, ooh, you got a gun. Tough guy. I'm like, you are a tough guy. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's a lot of confidence. You're about to get shot. <laughs> <laughs> you are a tough guy. So that broke that broke the tie for me. Also, uh, you know, getting kicked in the crotch, uh, you know, adds another little bonus there too. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, recast, Chad. If you had to recast somebody, who would it be, and who would you put in their place? You spent a lot of time talking about him, so I feel bad. But Rockman Dunbar is Mr. Fire. I am replacing him with Jordan Peele. Mm. Okay. Too bad. Oh, you don't <laughs> you, you don't like that. I think Jordan would have really added to Dude, this role. We're gonna be just elbow dropping Russell on this one. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> did, did you go for Rockman Dunbar as well, Chad Efry? I did. Yes, oh. I did. I, oh, I am replacing him with uh, Romney Malco from Forty Year Old Virgin. Oh, that's a good one too. Hmm. Okay. I think that would have been hilarious. I love that guy's uh, comedic execution. Um, I think he would have been hilarious in this movie. And he's big and intimidating, too. Regardless of who's playing him, I want more of him in this movie. He fronts, he he speaks that language well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my recast, uh, you guys might, it's your turn to get mad at me, maybe. I'm, I'm actually going to recast Robert Downey Jr. in this one. And I'm going to put John, Ooh. yeah, I'm going to put John Cusack in his place. So, hmm. Ice Harvest Part 2. Um, they were made in the same year, so uh, I think. So uh, it's one or the other. John Cusack probably can't be in two places at once. Although he made Must Love Dogs in the same year, so I guess he can fit a third movie in. And and he's one year younger than Robert Downey Jr., so that 11-year age difference is uh, kicked down to 10 years age difference between him and uh, Michelle Monaghan. My, my only knock on this is I would never have wanted Cusack to have done this and not done Ice Harvest. So... I would keep them both exactly where they are because now I I get both of these movies. (laughs) (laughs) I just felt like, and I'll explain. I think John Cusack would have done a great job with the narrator. His cynical nature, I think, is very fitting for this character. Robert Downey Jr.'s fast pace nature actually might be better for the know-it-all detective. It would be a very different gay period, and I still would pick Val Kilmer over him. But I, I think Robert Downey Jr. probably should have been auditioning for Gay Perry's character. I felt like John Cusack would have a much better, like, what's going on kind of look on his face, as well as the uh, I've had it up to here, the finger getting cut off thing. That would have been really good on that one. I, I've We've seen enough uh, him pining over uh, the woman that got away, uh, a la High Fidelity, and uh, and Hot Tub Time Machine, for that matter. Um, and I just, uh, I'm a huge Cusack fan, and I, I like him better than Downey Jr. I'm not going to lie across the board. So this is just one of those ones where I'm like, I like Robert Downey Jr. But I think I'd really like to see Cusack. It was like two solid minutes of you being wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Boom. (laughs) That's a good podcast. (laughs) I've I've been the worst part of this episode (laughs) up until now. And now it's Russell. Everyone turn and listen. Well, who can argue with the guy who made Due Date and Iron Man 3? (laughs) And Iron Man 2. No, but uh, go on. I didn't say I wanted to see Colin Farrell in this movie. (laughs) There's Wrong and then there's Alexander Wrong. Um, 
All right, Chad, help right the ship then. What's your best shot? So the first shot we see of adult Harry looking into that pool at the Hollywood party, he's it's steeped in symbolism. He's deciding whether to jump into that Hollywood life as well as to just flat out jump into the pool. So I thought it was a good shot. Yeah, yeah. I, it's a great choice. I have one of my considerations as well. I'm glad you picked that one. Brian, what's your best shot? Uh, my best shot from this is uh, the whole scene. Well, I shouldn't say scene because we're going to do best scene. The best shot is Val Kilmer shooting the guy during the torture scene. And I will leave it at that so we can leave out all the pieces of how that was awesome. Okay. My best shot is kind of a cheat. It's the opening credits. They're just beautifully drawn and abstracted it's awfully fun it's very la you get an instant sense of the tone of what's going it's playful it's dangerous it's noir it's tipping its hat to the pulp novels that are mentioned throughout this movie uh the music sets the mode well too and that's great and uh you know and if you really want to squeeze it out of me what's the best actual cinematic moment i do like the scene where the hitman falls through the table after getting shot and so when Harry shoots him, they have a very low camera angle on that, and he breaks through the glass table. They did a nice job on that one. My off-the-reservation answer is the opening credits. No, that's a good choice. Best scene in the movie, Chad. The scene with Harmony pleading with Harry to help her while he can't stop staring at her chest. He's only getting some of the information, <laughs> and the, the camera is very deliberate with where his eyes are going. And even the extension of that scene where she passes out and the spider goes down her bra. My wife just gasped at that and he's trying to swat away the spider. <laughs> and there's that whole, you know, did you just grab my, I'll say chest in case I get banned again, just grab my chest and he's having that argument and I, I enjoyed it. I grabbed it and it's a biggie. <laughs> <laughs> interesting, interesting. I'm not, uh, that, that scene, that scene actually didn't work for me as much, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> um, uh, Brian, what's your best scene? Look, Chad, Russell's going back to being wrong. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. My favorite scene of the movie is uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s casting scene. Uh, not only for the nuances and the script he's actually reading, but like just his 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 emotion for it, and I can see it from the eyes of you know the guy who finds him and he's just like oh my god this guy's amazing and it's just old school method <laughs> it's it's just the it's not just the fact that robert downey jr is a good actor and i think he can turn that on and off to make this scene work but it's also the duality of that whatever luck is on his side to make things go both horribly wrong and end up all right for him really makes this movie because this stuff continuously happens for him. And even though he ends up on his feet in the end, he might lose a finger. Oh, yeah. He is a great actor. One could say he's almost as good as John Cusack. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I have to try that. I have to drive that knife in him a little bit. Sorry. I, yeah. <laughs> Compare net, net worth. <laughs> uh, my best scene is going to be Harry and Perry leaving the hospital and a goon intercepts them. They turn the tables on him. And he explains why you shouldn't walk that close. He takes the gun and uh, turns into the whole Russian roulette fail scene where, you know, he puts the gun in. And you guys mentioned it earlier with the uh, I had like an eight percent chance. And he's like, eight percent. Who taught you math? This banter between Harry and Perry is 
the absolute thriving point for this movie they're at their best here and uh the lake was another good scene where they're arguing there too whether to throw the gun away or how to dispose of the body and i feel like that was that was really when things started cooking and then this is when things are at their absolute best so that was my best scene see i thought the torture scene might get mentioned with the guy just you know he's getting ready to do horrible things and he's just shooting it's my best shot shooting him with the squirt gun just casually shooting him with a squirt gun. <laughs> this, this this part of the movie actually to me is just like again that this, this my best scene comes off the heels of what you were just mentioning. So this is all this is all the best part for me. I, I wanted I wanted that to be my best quote for this movie. I really did like him explaining that gun, but I was like ah I can't I just can't. But it really is one of my favorite quotes of the movie because it's it's both shocking and telling at the same time and i think it's 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 a gift of writing to be able to play that scene and not really get in trouble for it because you know gay perry in this movie is really heralded as one of the first openly gay main characters uh in a movie it actually got a lot of kudos for his character in this it wasn't just a bit part yeah so now chad if you had to change one thing, what would it be? I think I'm going to upset Fry here because I, I feel like this is just totally in line with the type of movie you're wanting. But I really don't think the scene with Perry and Harmony's dad at the end was needed. That doesn't upset me. No, I agree. I, that that's. It seems like the kind of thing that would be in a deleted scenes DVD, actually. Like when you're like, we cut this scene. Yeah. It's like, oh, I can see why you cut that. Yeah, it was just too mean-spirited. I guess how I feel about it is coming from someone like Gay Perry, who's probably dealt with a lot of turmoil in his life, that if Robert Downey Jr. had been the one to do it, it I would, I'd would i agree with you. But because it's Val Kilmer doing it, I don't. No, that's good pers- perspective. And did they even admit it in the movie, Chad? Like, well, I saw Lord of the Rings. I didn't want to end this movie 17 times. It's like, well, you're kind of doing that. So... <laughs> Uh, it's not Return of the King. Yeah. Brian, change one thing. We already talked about it. I could have used a little less narrator of parts. I thought, I agree with you guys that it was heavy in the beginning and not at the end. But I also think I've kind of talked myself into the beginning being necessary and not so much at the end. So I think this is kind of one of those things that in the natural progression of the podcast, I've changed my mind. Okay. My change one thing is kind of a, this is very broad, but I'd like to de-emphasize the harmony aspect of it and put more emphasis on the partnership between Harry and Perry. Bring them together as partners sooner and focus more of the movie around there. I know harmony is important. She's kind of the troublemaker. She's the straw that stirs the drink. But I don't feel like she's at the same time. I think she's there for plot purposes in my perfect world i just would rather focus on the two guys and because i like seeing them argue because that's when the movie's at its funniest and that's when i'm having the most fun interesting decision so watch the nice guys (laughs) (laughs) Um, what is your best quote of the movie chad no my question i get to go first why in blue perfect hell would you pee on a corpse good one good one i enjoyed the grammar games and that was perfect I really want to know if I started saying what in Blue Perfect Hell was because of this movie or if it was something that I had heard before. I, I, it, it will bother me forever. It's just, I mean, again, going back to, 
I think I've mentioned I took a bunch of Latin, so using pluperfect in a sentence correctly is just impressive. You win grammar awards. All right, and Brian, what's your best quote? A talking monkey. Yeah, yeah, came from the future ugly sucker. Only says ficus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to go with the, he was narrating and at this part. I was cold. I was tired. I was wetter than Drew Barrymore at a grunge club. <laughs> what was with that? That that reference went over my head. Uh, well, Drew Barrymore liked, you know, the, the bad boy kind of, you know, there's a certain type that she had in the uh, mid 90s and that would fit, you know, the grunge rocker kind of, you know, bad boy kind of type. So that was funny. Yeah, I'm not up to date on my Drew Barrymore gossip, so that one just went. Wrong. So you're more, you're you're more familiar with her, like when she was doing the whole Tom Green phase thing, huh? Yeah, yeah. It was like that. That was the one I knew before that, though. <laughs> I happily haven't thought about him in a really huh? long time. Uh, yeah, surprisingly, we haven't done Freddy Got Fingered yet. Daddy, would you like some sauce? Well, when we run out of all other movies, <laughs> we'll get to that one. <laughs> Well, uh, it's that fun time of the show where we come to an exciting conclusion and rate this movie on a five-star scale with half-star intervals. Chad, what would you rate this movie? Going three and a half. I enjoyed it, but I kind of felt like it ran out of steam and wit towards the end. But overall, it was still a good time. All right. And Brian, what would you rate this movie? I'm going to give this one a four. It is one of my stalwart favorites, so I am... I'm backing it with the full weight of a four. Is there things or are there things that could have been done better? Absolutely. Do I need those things fixed? Nope. Okay. I'm going to go with a two on this one. Things didn't come together for me as well. And like I said, the focus being on harmony throughout the time started to actually agitate me. And um, there's a lot of stuff that didn't connect for me. And I feel like you got to get that mystery part of this right first and foremost, and then write the comedy and stuff to suit it well after that. I'm not sure that uh, I'll be returning to this one anytime too soon. So um, I definitely see the appeal and I think it's very, very important for all all involved. I guess my hot take would be if you enjoy this, maybe check out The Nice Guys or Get Shorty if those are better movies. I think the hot take is Russell hates women. Russell, <laughs> Russell wants the women cut out of this movie, except the dead chick. She served an important part. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes, uh, I I wanted to turn it into a buddy cop movie. It's true. <laughs> Not everything can be a buddy cop movie. Do you want me pick a movie for next time? Let's do it. We're gonna do a science fiction movie again because it's very popular demand. People want us to do more of these. Option number one: Final Fantasy: The Spirits Within, two thousand one. Has nothing to do with the video game series. A scientist makes a last stand on Earth with help from a ragtag team of soldiers against an invasion of alien phantoms. Option two, Predator from 1987. A team of commandos on a mission in Central American jungle find themselves haunted by an, an extraterrestrial warrior. Option three, Moon from 2009. Astronaut Sam Bell has a quintessentially personal encounter towards the end of his three-year stint on the moon where he is working alongside of his computer, Gertie, sending back Earth parcels of resources that helped diminished our planet's power problems uh guys i think i'm gonna go with predator on this one that's a classic and uh just needs to be done and we did aliens but i gotta tell you yeah i gotta tell you though uh if you ever have the chance to watch the outtakes and yes there are outtakes from a cgi movie 
of uh, Final Fantasy Spirits Within, it is well worth it. They are hilarious. Oh, did not know about outtakes on that one. But Predator, we will be doing. Thank you guys for coming on. Sure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for allowing me to be the worst part of this podcast up until you being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, bombs over Baghdad. <laughs> uh, fantastic. And thank you all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews help us make the show better, and they help others find the show. We really appreciate that. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free, and we invite you to support the show at Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Retro Movie Roundtable, all one word. And uh, we will put any donations we get toward making the show better, not just in our pockets. So thank you, as always, for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? Well, you're all effed up. You look like shit. But no problem. All you need is a better cut of cocaine.